We all like stories that end well. It's actually part of the way that we are wired. We want to see the guy and the girl get together. We want to see the baddie get justice. We want to see the goodie vindicated. And much to the ridicule of my macho friends, I have to confess that my favorite films are Sleepless in Seattle and Notting Hill for those very reasons. Now, I know that's going to be held against me, and I know that's going to give me a tough time in the office during the course of the week, but there is my confession. I love those films. I love it when it all comes together, when there's a good ending. And if I was a film director making a movie out of the Bible book Ezra Nehemiah, we've seen that actually it's, it's one book, though it's two in our scriptures, it actually is one book. If I was making a movie out of Ezra Nehemiah, I would undoubtedly finish the film at Nehemiah 12, verse 43. You see, the occasion has been the dedication of the city walls, the city walls that were repaired under Nehemiah's leadership. And there's been some superb choreography. You could imagine how the film director would be working this. Two large choirs go in opposite directions along the city walls, meeting back up by the sheep gate before going in to the newly rebuilt temple and singing together under their musical director. Nehemiah 12.43, by the way, if you have a Bible with you or on your device, um, here's the agreement we have. You look up the references in Ezra and Nehemiah, and I will show you the references that aren't going to be from that book. But, but do have it open in front of you. And here is the great verse, uh, Nehemiah 12, verse 43, and on that day they offered great sacrifices, rejoicing, because God had given them great joy. The women and children also rejoiced. The sound of rejoicing in Jerusalem could be heard far away. Now you get it. Cue orchestra. Cue fireworks and the final credits rolling up the screen. Superb! What a wonderful, feel-good ending. The only problem being is this isn't how the book ends. There's still another 35 verses left. So look with me at what happens and what lessons we're to learn. Now verses 44 to 47 there in chapter 12 of Nehemiah describe how various storerooms that were attached to the, the temple, don't just think the temple was a building only confined to people coming in to worship. No, there were various storerooms, and these storerooms were used to store the produce that those, uh, that people living round about brought in to support the work of those whose work was in the temple, who weren't able to work on the land. Actually, we uh, used to have the same in our land, um, certainly up to about 400 years ago, they were quite common, and you can still find them 
dotted around the place as uh, historical curiosities. They were called tithe barns. And maybe you've visited tithe barns. There are tithe barns in Scotland. There's tithe barns in the rest of the UK because you have these buildings set aside for farm produce to be, built, uh, to be brought in that was given to those who were working within the church. Now, this all sounds good and well, because it goes in, goes on, Nehemiah 12, verse 47, so in the days of Zerubbabel and of Nehemiah, all Israel contributed the daily portions for the musicians and the gatekeepers. They also set aside the portion for the other Levites, and the Levites set aside the portion for the descendants of Aaron, the priests. So, so far, so good. And the following verses seem to show the enthusiasm of the people for God's law. Have a look at the beginning of Nehemiah 13. On that day, the book of Moses was read aloud in the hearing of the people, and there it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever be admitted into the assembly of God. Verse 3, when the people heard this law, they excluded from Israel all who were... Now, what would you be expecting there? They've just been told no Ammonite or Moabite should be admitted. When the people heard this law, they excluded from Israel all who were Ammonite or Moabite. No! They excluded from Israel all who were of foreign descent. Now, hang on, that seems a bit uber-keen. In fact, it seems to run counter to what the prophets had suggested regarding Jerusalem. Isaiah 2, verse 2, it says this, In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills, and all nations will stream to it. Or Zechariah 8 Verse 20 through to 22, this is what the Lord Almighty says. Many peoples and the inhabitants of many cities will yet come, and the inhabitants of one city will go to another and say, let us go at once to entreat the Lord and seek the Lord Almighty. I myself am going. And here it is, and many peoples and powerful nations will come to Jerusalem to seek the Lord Almighty and to entreat him. So, Question marks are beginning to be raised about what's happening. Have the people lost sight of God's big purposes to bless all nations, as was first announced to Abraham? And actually, does this policy even work? Because have a look at how the writer continues. Nehemiah 13, verses 4 to 5. Before this, Eliashib, the priest, had been put in charge of the storerooms of the house of our God. He was closely associated with Tobiah, and he had provided him with a large room formerly used to store the grain offerings and incense and temple articles, and also the tithes of grain, new wine, and olive oil prescribed for the Levites, musicians, and gatekeepers, as well as the contributions for the priests. So, you have a priest 
looking after the rooms that store food for people who work in the temple. And what has he done? He has given a large room to Tobiah. Now, if you've been with us, you will know that Tobiah was one of the two great enemies of Israel that we've already come across on several occasions in this particular book. And what do we also know about uh, Tobiah? He is here given this as a sort of his own private apartment. It's like an Airbnb for Tobiah. Anytime he wants to come in, it's, it's his room for the using. And what do we know about him? Nehemiah 2 verse 10. When Sambalat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard about this. Do you see, he's, he's an Ammonite. And what had the people agreed to in verse 1? On that day, the book of Moses was read aloud in the hearing of the people, and there it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever be admitted into the assembly of God. So Nehemiah's response is no surprise when it comes to hear what's been going on there in Nehemiah 13, verses 7 to 8. Nehemiah writes, Here I learned about the evil thing Eliashib had done in providing Tobiah a room in the courts of the house of God. I was greatly displeased and threw all Tobiah's household goods out of the room. Now that would be worthy actually of a, of a scene, I think, in a film. I'd love to have been there uh, and seen that being carried out. So whereas Ezra, Nehemiah, the book had started out with such hope, you'll remember in the rebuilding of the temple, we discover that it hasn't worked out as, as planned. There are still serious problems. But they don't end there. Go on to Nehemiah 13 from verse 15. Nehemiah, Nehemiah writes, in those days I saw people in Judah treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in grain and loading it on donkeys together with wine, grapes, figs, and all other kinds of loads. And they were bringing all this into Jerusalem on the Sabbath. I rebuked the nobles of Judah and said to them, what is this wicked thing you are doing, desecrating the Sabbath day? Now, now do you remember why Ezra returned to Jerusalem after the exile. Remember, we had the first bunch under Zerubbabel. They went to rebuild and restore the temple. And then about 60 years later, Ezra comes. And his job was to reestablish the place of God's law amongst that Jewish community. But that hasn't really worked either, has it? It's been so quickly forgotten. It really hasn't taken root in the hearts of those who returned. So there are still serious problems. And they don't end there. Nehemiah 13, verse 19. When evening shadows fell on the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I ordered the doors to be shut and not opened until the Sabbath was over. I stationed some of my own men at the gates so that no load could be brought in on the Sabbath day. Once or twice, the merchants and sellers of all kinds of goods spent the night outside Jerusalem. But I warned them and said, why do you spend the night by the wall? If you do this again, I will arrest you. You see, the walls, remember we had 
the temple rebuilt. We had the reestablishment of the law. And then why did Nehemiah come about 13 years after Ezra? It was rebuilding the wall. It was to repair the walls to protect Jerusalem. But those walls are now sheltering lawbreakers. It seems that they may even have been used as the backdrop for pop-up market stalls. What once had offered such hope and protection is now being used for inappropriate purposes. So the three great projects of the book have been exposed as powerless in three swift episodes. The temple, the law, the walls. And this is quite deliberate. And what about the two great leaders, Ezra and Nehemiah, who had come to help establish this new Jewish community? Well, let's continue the story. Nehemiah 13, verse 23. Nehemiah writes, Moreover, in those days I saw men of Judah who had married women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. Half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod or the language of one of the other peoples and did not know how to speak the language of Judah. Now, again, do you remember what Ezra's great project had been? It had been to reestablish the law, but then something else intruded. Ezra 9 verse 1. After these things had been done, the leaders came to me and said, the people of Israel, including the priests and the Levites, have not kept themselves separate from the neighboring peoples with their detestable practices, like those of the Canaanites, Hittites, Perizzites, Jebusites, Ammonites, Moabites, Egyptians, and Amorites. They've taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and their sons, and have mingled the holy race with the peoples around them. And the leaders and officials have led the way in this unfaithfulness. When I heard this, I tore my tunic and cloak, pulled hair from my head and beard, and sat down appalled. Then everyone who trembled at the words of the God of Israel gathered around me because of this unfaithfulness of the exiles, and I sat there appalled until the evening sacrifice. And, and, and actually, we, we went on, the story goes on, the people gathered, they made a covenant to do away with their foreign wives. And at this time, it seemed to be working. But not now, from what we've been reading. Ezra's mission has been seriously compromised. And then what about Nehemiah himself? How does this great leader handle himself after the example he set of his passion for the glory of God, his delight in the covenant of grace that we noticed a couple of weeks ago. Well, basically, he loses it big time. Nehemiah 13, 25. I rebuked them and called curses down on them. I beat some of the men and pulled out their hair. I made them take an oath in God's name and said, you are not to give your daughters in marriage to their sons, nor are you to take their daughters in marriage for your sons or for yourself. Now, violence, coercive leadership. It's Mark Driscoll after three coffees. Beating people into an outward submission. So his mission has been seriously 
compromised as well. And then the book ends. Nehemiah 13, verse 30. So I purified the priests and the Levites of everything foreign and assigned them duties each to his own task. I also made provision for contributions of wood at designated times and for the first fruits. Remember me with favor, my God. And that's it. That's the end of the book. Hardly worthy of a Hollywood blockbuster. It just seems incredibly anticlimactic. So not only have the three major projects been exposed as incomplete and flawed, so have the two major leaders. And once again, let me say that this is deliberate. So let me suggest some of the major lessons from this book. Just three applications. Not nine, as from last week, just three applications uh, this week. Number one. It exposes a flawed heart. It exposes a flawed heart. You see, the book started with such high hopes. You remember those opening verses in Ezra that that were pointing us to the fact that the return from exile was actually a fulfillment of prophecy. Jeremiah, the prophet, the great prophet, had said it would happen, and it did And numerous other prophecies from Isaiah and Ezekiel, to name just two, had pointed to a glorious future when God's reign over all the earth would become apparent. No doubt many of the returnees had assumed that because they were fulfilling one such prophecy, then all the others are going to be fulfilled in quick succession. But what became obvious is that unless the human heart itself is changed, then all other human efforts will be defective and incomplete. You can try your hardest. You can initiate changes. You can devise wise strategies. You can agree good laws. You can enforce different behavior, but ultimately... Unless there is change on the inside, unless the human heart has been renovated and renewed, then the best plans will be ineffective. And actually, this is what the prophet Jeremiah himself had anticipated a few years before. You see, he spoke about this return from exile. There in Jeremiah 31, verse 28, he said, just as I watched over them to uproot and tear down and to overthrow, destroy and bring disaster. So I will watch over them to build and to plant, declares the Lord. But then notice what he says three verses later. Jeremiah 31 from verse 31. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. Get this, I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. 
And it wasn't just Jeremiah who was seeing what God was planning to do. Ezekiel says the same. Ezekiel 11, verse 17. Therefore say, this is what the sovereign Lord says. I will gather you from the nations and bring you back from the countries where you have been scattered. And I will give you back the land of Israel again. They will return to it and remove all its vile images and detestable idols. Here it is. I will give them an undivided heart and put a new spirit in them. I will remove from them their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. Then they will follow my decrees and be careful to follow my laws. They will be my people and I will be their God. And this new covenant, when God's Spirit comes to dwell within the believer, was inaugurated with the work of Jesus Christ, dying as the perfect final sacrifice in our place on the cross. Now, time doesn't allow it, but if you want to check that out further, read Hebrews chapters 8 to 10, where the writer is making exactly that point. Hebrews 8 to 10. So, look, can I say this? If you are not a believer, if you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, here this morning or listening to us online, look, this exposes that by yourself you could never, ever perfectly fulfill God's law. You could never earn his favor by your own efforts. It would all be doomed to failure because your heart is flawed. It is dysfunctional. It is rebellious. It is sinful. My friends, Christianity is not about morality. Christianity is not about keeping the commandments. It's not about trying your hardest because you will fail. You need a new heart and there's only one who can effect that change from the inside out and that's Jesus Christ. So why not ask him? And if you're a believer here this morning, let me remind you that your own effort, your own hard work, your own plans and strategies will never build God's kingdom on their own. You need him. You need the work of God, the Holy Spirit. And therefore, we're going to be people of prayer and dependence, people who trust God and distrust ourselves, people who seek Him and rely upon Him for all things. Okay, this exposes a flawed heart, but secondly, it encourages a diligent response. It encourages a diligent response because the question obviously is, so well, does this mean we do nothing? Do we just sit back and wait knowing that actually whatever we do is going to be flawed and incomplete? You know, what's the point, Andy? Well, the genius of this book is that the clear answer is no. Although what the people did didn't bring about the return of God's kingdom in the way that they might have expected, what they did do was generally right and appropriate. The temple and altar was rebuilt to point to the necessity 
of sacrifice as the way that a holy God can be approached. The law of God was reinstituted to keep God's people deliciously distinct and to act as a signpost to God's covenant grace and mercy. And the walls of the city were repaired to underline the solidarity and the security of God's community. Now, each of these things was good and right, and the people did well to give themselves wholeheartedly to these enterprises. As we saw in the second message in this series, they saw themselves as part of God's big picture of salvation. Uh, They saw themselves as being, as it were, another exodus. They saw themselves, as it were, as being under a new Moses in, in terms of what Ezra did, or a new Joshua in terms of what Nehemiah did. There was continuity. You see, they, they rightly identified themselves as God's people within the ark of God's saving purposes. And my brothers and sisters, in the same way, we are called to diligently respond to be the people that God calls us to be. And sure, we're going to get some things wrong. And sure, we can't bring about God's kingdom through our own efforts, but that doesn't mean we do nothing. Actually, the Apostle Paul was keen to remind the Colossian believers this. There in Colossians 3, verse 17 and 23, he said, And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And then verse 23, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord. We, we aim for excellence. If you serve in this church, we don't just, let's just get by, let's just get the task done. We do it with excellence because we are working for the Lord. So we're going to be people who serve together and worship together and sing together and strive together. We're going to use every opportunity to do good and to commend Jesus. We're going to use the gifts and the abilities and the experiences that God has sovereignly given us. My friend, Charlotte Chapel will not be a theatre for passive observation, but a family committed to active participation. Let me give you that again. Charlotte Chapel will not be a theatre for passive observation. This is not just a place where you say, oh yeah, I go to Charlotte Chapel and I come along on uh, a Sunday and I just watch what's, what, what's being done. And, oh boy, you know, got some great preachers. There's Paul, there's Liam. And why well, it's great to, to, to be part of that. No, we're not here as passive observers as if we're in a theatre. No, we are here as a family who are committed to active participation. Third thing, final thing, I want to say by way of application is this. It anticipates a glorious future. It anticipates a glorious future. The way the Jewish scriptures, what we call the Old Testament, have been arranged is different to what we have in our Bible. Uh, You know, the sort of major chunk, the first bit, what we call the Old Testament, The way the books are laid out for us is not the way that they are laid out 
in the Jewish scriptures. Now, in the Jewish scriptures, basically, they divide it into three. It begins with the Torah, the books of the law. So you have Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. You'll see this on screen. You then have uh, another section, a second section, called the Prophets. And that section includes some books of history, such as Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings, as well as the three major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. And they're then followed by what we call the 12 minor prophets. And by the way, we call them minor prophets because they are smaller in size. It's not because they're less important or significant. They are minor prophets because they are smaller. And then the third section of the Jewish scriptures is called the writings, which includes everything else. For example, poetry and wisdom literature. And notice how it concludes. It concludes with Daniel, with the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, and with Chronicles. Now, in our Bible, Chronicles comes earlier. You, you, some of you already be going, oh, yeah, yeah, that follows on from Kings. And it repeats some of that material, doesn't it? But chronologically, it was the last of the Old Testament books to be written, and therefore it does conclude the Jewish scriptures. And actually, when you look at Chronicles, you can see why. It's a summary book. It begins with Adam. The writer is making sure we get the whole idea. He's going to cover the span. It begins with Adam there in 1 Chronicles 1 verse 1. And then the chronicler takes us all the way through Old Testament history and concludes his account and indeed concludes the Jewish scriptures with these words. So let me read to you the last two verses of Chronicles. 2 Chronicles 36 verses 22 to 23. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and also to put it in writing. This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. Any of his people among you, you may go up and may the Lord their God be with them. That's it, the end. End of the Jewish scriptures. But you're maybe listening to that and said, uh, haven't we read that before, Andy? Isn't that elsewhere? Yeah, you're right. They're from the start of Ezra. Ezra 1, verses 1 to 3. And what is important for us to understand is how the chronicler uses this, but only finishes part way. Let's have a look at Ezra 1, verses 2 to 4. Um, it's going to be on screen, and what you can see by way of the um, in bold and underlined is what the chronicler uses. Now, Ezra 1, 2 to 4. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. Any of his people among you may go up. Boom! And actually, he then incorporates a little line a little bit later, and may the Lord their God be with them. But in Ezra, the book we've been reading, it continues. 
Any of his people among you may go up to Jerusalem in Judah and build the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who is in heaven, and may their God be with them. And in any locality where survivors may now be living, the people are to provide them with silver and gold goods and livestock and with free will offerings for the temple of God in Jerusalem. <laughs> now, I can see some of you going, so, so what? <laughs> so, so, so what, Andy? What, what, what point are you making? What's this all about? Well, it's brilliant. It's clear that the final writer of the Jewish scriptures didn't see that the events in Ezra and Nehemiah are the final answer. They're not. He's seeing the bigger picture. He's actually looking ahead for God's perfect fulfillment. He knows all those promises that hadn't yet been fulfilled and accomplished, and he's looking ahead. He's anticipating how God will establish his kingdom and write his law on the hearts of his people. And so he, he finishes the Jewish scriptures like that. And then there is silence for 400 years. There is silence. Until suddenly a, an angel appears to a young woman in Nazareth and announces the arrival of God's promised rescuer. And nine months later, another angel tells a bunch of shepherds on the hills outside Bethlehem, today in the town of David, a saviour has been born to you. He is Messiah, the promised one, the Lord. And so it continues God's wonderful rescue plan to save his people and build his kingdom. There's been that 400-year hiatus, but it's continuing. And the scene now moves to a cross where Jesus, the promised Messiah, dies as the perfect and final sacrifice. And then the scene moves to an empty tomb where God's victory over death is clear for all to see. And then the scene moves to a room where the first disciples are filled with God's Spirit, where they're given new hearts. And as the history books of the New Testament close, the scene is that of a rapidly expanding church. As the good news of Jesus Christ continues to spread and spread, and of which we are now And it's not yet over. We're still waiting for that final triumph over sin when Jesus returns and when, when sin is banished eternally. And all God's people, called from all the nations, will live in the presence of the King. And John the Apostle was given a view of these things and he writes this. Revelation 21, verses 22 to 27, he says, And I did not see a temple in the city, because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. There is no more temple. Oh, that occupied them in Ezra and Nehemiah. Build the temple, but there is coming a day when there will be no more need for a temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. There is no more need for God's law. Because the Lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ himself, 
The Son of God, slain for sinners, is the one who will be the light that will guide and lead his people. There's no more need for God's law, Ezra. The nations will walk by its light and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut for there will be no night there. Do you see no gates? The gates are open. No walls required, Nehemiah, for the nations will come. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. And our response, our response to Ezra and Nehemiah is, come, Lord Jesus, come. Let's pray. Sovereign God, we, we thank you for the way that your word reveals to us your awesome and glorious plan for building your kingdom. And Father, we, we thank you that you've deliberately given us a book like Ezra and Nehemiah to show that human effort on its own cannot accomplish this. Lord, we are dependent upon you and we are so grateful for the new covenant of grace so that folks like us Wretched, helpless sinners can know what it is to be made new, to be forgiven, to be adopted into your family. And Lord God, we thank you that you've given us opportunities to serve you. Thank you for these responsibilities that we have. Help us to discharge them wisely. Father, we pray especially for those of us of Charlotte Chapel that we will be your people for your glory. And Lord Jesus, build your church. Go on doing what you're doing, gathering folks from all the nations until Jesus himself returns and every eye will see him and every knee will have to bow before him and acknowledge who he is to the glory of God. Come, Lord Jesus, come. And in the meantime, keep us watching and waiting and working. For your glory we ask it. Amen.